Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Across the Cemetery. My name's Josh. And my name's Emma. And this week Emma is going to be leading our topic, so I'll let her take it away. Okay, so now this is a topic that is very dear to my heart. And as I was writing this episode, I could see a clump of sage, a cluster of crystals and a spell candle. So if you haven't already guessed by that small introduction, we are doing about witches. So... Firstly, do you believe in witches? Yes. (laughs) 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 Sounds. Okay. (laughs) There is countless stories about this topic and there's countless versions of events and countless tragic stories as well. So so obviously I can't focus on all witches at once. So I was going to focus on ones closer to home. So this week we are going to look at the Pendle Witches. Oh, Primarily the Pendle Witch Trial. So we've been to Pendle twice and the first time we went was in the midst midst of a lockdown. And did you enjoy Pendle? I did, yeah. I much enjoyed the second time, which was about a year ago. Literally a year ago, nearly. Yeah, we went for your birthday. Yep. Okay, so do you know anything about the Pendle Witches? I know we've been. Yes. <laughs> like, but do you know at the top of your head, like the history and that? Because I, even I didn't know much, even though we've been to like museums. Yeah, I get sort of idea. I know there's there's obviously that church that we went to that's got the the yeah. grave. I know they were walked across. Walked uh, to Lancaster Castle. Yeah. Other than that, not a whole deal, but I know like the sort of gist of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The Pendle Witches were a group of individuals who were accused of practising witchcraft in the Pendle Hill area of Lancashire, England, in the early 17th century. The events surrounding the Pendle Witch Trials have become one of the most famous witch trials in English history. So witchcraft was made illegal in England in 1563, and English people at the time were very religious and they felt that witches were anti-Christian. In the summer of 1612, 12 people from Pendle in Lancashire were accused of witchcraft and imprisoned at Lancaster Castle. Of these 12 people, 9 were sentenced to death after being found guilty of performing witchcraft. So I'm going to give you a backstory of them people now. Thank you. So for many years before the trial, Elizabeth Southerns, who was more commonly known as Demdike, was considered a witch by many in her local area. She lived with her daughter, Elizabeth Device, and... Elizabeth's children, James, Alison and Jeanette. And it was not considered unusual that the whole family believed in magic and that they could use magic. For a long time, witch hadn't necessarily meant evil, but it could often be used as a term of healer or wise woman. Demdike and her family had received accusations of casting curses before from their neighbours, but it was an event in March 1612 that caught the attention of Pendle's Justice of the Peace, Robert Noel, and this sealed the family's fate. On the 21st of March, 1612, Demdike's older granddaughter, Alison Device, was on her way to Trawden Forest when she encountered a peddler from Halifax named John Law and his son, Abraham. It is unclear whether she was meant to purchase them or she was begging for them from him, but Alison requested some pins from John. They were metal pins, which were often associated with witchcraft in the 17th century, and they were particularly linked with love magic, which is perhaps why Alison wanted to use them. We have no way of knowing if John refused to give them to her because he believed that she was a witch, or because he just didn't want to reach into the bottom of his pack for such a small transaction. 
But either way, Alison asked for the pins and John said no. This would be the beginning of the end for Alison. Alison cursed the peddler before the two went their separate ways, only to witness him stumble and fall moments later. Nowadays we would just say that this was an unlucky coincidence, and even though we're not 100% certain, most of the historians believe that John simply suffered a stroke after his exchange with Alison. At first there was no initial accusation against Alison for having caused John's illness, but in fact it was Alison herself who was convinced of her own powers and felt guilt for what had happened, so much that she accompanied Mr Law's son to his father's bedside to beg his forgiveness and attempt to reverse the curse that she believed she had placed upon him. Her belief in her own ability to cause others harm through witchcraft meant that she was admitting to the crime, and it was this that led to Alison, Elizabeth and James Device to appear before Robert Noel on the 30th of March 1612. In early 1612 there was an anti-Catholic movement which was inspired by James I and the north of of England has a preference for the old ways, that's in inverted commas. So every justice of the peace in Lancashire was ordered to compile a list of people who refused to go to Church of England services in their area, so that's Protestant. Being a Catholic was associated often with being a witch, and a successful set of witch trials and accusations would make Noel incredibly popular in the eyes of the king. So when a guilt-ridden Alison Device admitted that she had sold her soul to the devil and ordered him to lame John Law, Noel had the juiciest case of his career on his hands. This was not a family that stuck together in times of crisis, Alison's brother James told Noel that his sister had also confessed to bewitching a local child and while there is no record of Elizabeth trying to defend her children, she did tell Noel that her mother Demdike had a mark on her body that resembled a witch's mark. This was allegedly proof that the devil himself had made a pact with the old woman. Alison then went on to accuse Anne Whittle, who is known as Chateau, and her daughter Anne Redfern of witchcraft. Chateau was the matriarch of another Pendle family associated with witchcraft, and the two families despised each other. Alison may have believed that Chateau and Anne were really witches, or she simply saw the chance for revenge. She accused Chateau of murdering five men, including her father John Device, which could have maybe been revenge for an instant that occurred in 1601 when a member of Chateau's family broke into the device home known as Malkin Tower and stole some goods. Alison claims that her father had been so frightened of old Chateau that he agreed to give her eight pounds of oatmeal each year in return for her promise not to hurt his family. The meal was handed over annually until the year before John's death. On his deathbed, he claims that his sickness had been caused because he had not paid for protection that year. Demdike, Chateau and Anne Redfern were summoned to appear before Noel on the 2nd of April 1612. Though they were vulnerable, both Demdike and Chateau, because they were blind and they were in the 80s at the time, they both admitted to selling their souls to the devil. Anne refused to admit such a thing. But like the devices, this was another family that believed in all or nothing, for her mother accused her of making clay figures when she used to practice witchcraft. So with free admittance of guilt, it was no surprise that Noel sent all four women, Dem Dyke and her granddaughter Alison, 
and Chateau and her daughter Anne to Lancaster Castle to await an official trial. This could have possibly been, been the end for it. John had discovered four witches and he had got them out of his town. However, on Good Friday, the 10th of April, 1612, Elizabeth Device organised a meeting at her home in Malcolm Tower. Those who were sympathetic to the family attended and to feed them, James Device stole a neighbour's sheep. When word had reached Noel, an inquiry was carried out and the eight people who had attended the meeting were also accused of witchcraft and seven of them were sent to join the others in Lancaster Castle. The seven are Elizabeth Device, James Device, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, Jane Bullcock, Alice Gray and Janet Preston. However, Janet Preston lived across the border in Yorkshire Therefore, she was sent to York for her trial. She was found guilty of witchcraft and was hanged on the 29th of July, 1612. Of those accused, Alice Nutter was set apart from the rest on account of her class. While the majority of the people caught in the Pendle trials were of peasantry background, Alice was from a fairly wealthy family in Ruffley, and she was a widow who owned her own land. Today, it is thought likely that she was spotted at Malkin Tower, on her way to another meeting with a group of local Catholics, for the Nutter family were known to be loyal to the Catholic faith. But in order to keep her fellow Catholics safe, Alice said nothing at all at the trial apart from pleading not guilty. The trials took place from the 18th to the 19th of August 1612. The accused would deny witnesses to plead their innocence and in a remarkable turn of, turn of events, the key witness for the prosecution was Elizabeth Device's youngest child, who was nine-year-old Jeanette Device. Usually a child of nine would not have been used as a key witness in a case such as this, but in his book, Demonology, King James I made the case that, when trying to punish witches for their crimes, it was, ex it was acceptable to bend the normal rules of providing evidence at a witch trial. Janet Device has often been met with an unkind hand when people talk about her in history. Since 1612 she has often been remembered as an evil child who turned on her own family, which seems like a particularly unfair accusation when so many members of her family had already accused each other of the crimes. It is true that there didn't appear to be any closeness or affection within the Device household, but Janet was also treated poorly by the rest of her family. Janet was treated poorly by the rest of her family, but we'll never know for certain whether it was a dislike for her family or pressure from the adults in the trial that made her say, My mother is a witch and I know this to be true. I have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog, which she calls Ball. The dog did ask what she would have him do and she answered that she would have him help her kill. When Jeanette appeared in the courtroom, Elizabeth Device screamed at her until she was forced to be removed from the room so that the evidence could finally be heard. Knowing that whatever words were about to come from her youngest child's mouth would be the words that condemned her and the rest of her family to death. James Device also backed up previous allegations in which he accused his mother of witchcraft, saying that he had seen her make a clay figure out of one of her victims. But in turn, he was also accused of witchcraft by Jeanette's testimony. Alison continued to admit her guilt and old Demdike did not appear at the trial. She died in the horrid conditions at Lancaster Castle while awaiting the trial. By the end of the trial, the only person found not guilty was Alice Gray.
The remaining nine were hanged on the 20th of August 1612. During the Pendle Witch Trials, various methods were employed to obtain confessions from the accused individuals. The methods used were often aimed at extracting self-incriminating statements. Here are some of the techniques employed. So they used interrogation and the accused were subject to lengthy and intense interrogations conducted by local magistrates and officials. The questioning was often aggressive and it was accompanied by threats and intimidation. The accused were often pressured to admit their, vol their involvement in witchcraft and to implicate others. Sleep deprivation was a common tactic used during the interrogation and the accused was kept awake for extended periods of trance sometimes days just to wear them down physically and mentally which made them more likely to provide confessions and finally there obviously are more methods but i'm going to, but i'm going to go on to witch pricking witch pricking was a method used to identify witches and this supposed witch mark it involved the use of a sharp instrument such as a needle or a pin and this this was to prick the accused person's body, searching for a spot that was believed to be insensitive to pain. If such a mark was found, it was considered evidence of witchcraft. Janet Device disappeared from history until 24th of March 1634, when a woman named Janet Device became one of the 20 tried at Lancaster for a crime of witchcraft. She was accused of the murder of a woman named Isabel Nutter, this was by a 10-year-old boy named Edmund Robinson. Later on, Edmund admitted that he fabricated his evidence and the 20 weren't exe executed. However, it is likely thought that Jeanette ended her days the same way Demdike did, dying in Lancaster Castle despite being pardoned. So there's no official record of Jeanette's death after, or Jeanette after the trial, but according to a record from the 22nd of August 1636, she was still incarcerated. In recent years, the Pendle Witch Trials have become a subject of historical interest in tourism. The area around Pendle Hill has embarked its historical connection to the trials, and visitors can explore landmarks associated with the events, including the Pendle Heritage Centre in Barrowford and the remains of Lancaster Castle where the trials took place. In 2012, Lancashire commemorated 400 years since the trials, a time when belief and hysteria led to one of the darkest periods in Lancaster's history, and a statue of Alice Nutter by local artist David Palmer was unveiled in Roughly. So we've seen that statue, we've got a picture with it. Yeah, it, yeah, did we get, yeah, we stopped the car, didn't we? To get yeah, the yeah, picture yeah. We go past it a few times. Um, so what do you think about the Pendle Witch Trials then? It just sounds absurd. It sounds like they're just trying to convict anyone for absolutely anything. Mostly all women. Pricking someone with a pin and if they don't feel pain, they're guilty of being a witch. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so f the next bit, there wasn't really any short stories about Pendle witches. There was a lot of like fictional ones and I've read a book called The Familiars mm. where Alice Nutter is in it, but she's not really in it because it's fictional. That's the woman whose grave we've seen, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure we have a picture of somewhere. The statue of her as well. She's the one who was Catholic and wasn't really a witch, but she was Catholic, so... Oh, okay. Um, but I was looking on Reddit as well for a story about the Pendle Witch Trial. Because there's a lot for Salem, but there isn't a lot for, like, Pendle. But I found a no-sleep story, 
which is allegedly true. Allegedly. But aren't no sleep stories all fake? Well, actually, no sleep says... No sleep is a place for Reddit to share their scary personal experiences. That's all it says. Oh, okay. So it doesn't <laughs> have to be fake. Yeah. So we don't know. But it's quite long, so you'll probably need get to... Get yourself a cup of tea. Get yourself a cup of tea, a little biscuit. Um, and I'll say sorry now. At first, it starts off a bit like you'd think it's not going to... You think part of it is like, mm, why is she saying this? Or why is the person who wrote it saying this? But it all adds up at the end, I promise. And it is actually quite good. Just stick to it. Go on then. Okay, so this this is by The Eagle Strikes. And it was only posted 10 months ago. So this is called The Real Witch of Pendle Still Lives in the Forest. Don't look for her. I'm not going to lie. We paused this and I rewrote the story just because... Not rewrote it in terms of, oh my God, I added to it. Um, I just took bits out because when we were reading it, it was so long. I took 5,000 words out, so you can imagine. Um, But yeah, I'm going to read it to you now. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. If you don't, then I'm sorry. (laughs) There's a story that you won't read in history books. It's a truth that you only hear in my village. The Pendle witches were innocent, but there is a real witch in the forest of Boland. My name's Thomas and I grew up in Barley, which is a small English village in the borough of Pendle. You might have never heard of the Pendle hangings, even if you do know about the famous witch trials that took place during the 17th century. You probably don't believe in superstitious nonsense. You probably think the hangings were a mark of an uncivilised era. You wouldn't be wholly wrong. It's ghastly that throughout history, so many innocent women were murdered based on unfounded accusations of witchcraft. That doesn't mean, however, that witches aren't real. And if you've ever stumbled around a certain house in Bolan Forest, you would know that. I joke to myself about the Pendle witches and I will never forget the way my grandpa grabbed my wrist. He told me not to joke about them and said that there is only one witch in Pendle and she was never tried. I refused to see my grandpa after this, but not long after this occurrence, my dad pulled me aside when my mum left the room and said, Listen, I hate my father-in-law as much as you do. He has always been a twat. Don't let your mum know I said that, he whispered. I snorted, but then my dad's expression changed. I'd never seen him look so stern. He was always soft. He was always a clown. He didn't do serious. However, I will say that I don't want you to talk about that witch again, okay? Some things are best left alone. And I did. I left her alone for eight years. Of course, I grew up in Pendle, so it was hard to avoid general talks of witches, especially at Halloween. That being said, I did start to notice that adults in Bali would clam up when the dreaded W word appeared in conversation. I could never understand why other towns and villages in the country of Lancashire seemed to derive great pleasure from telling scary stories about the witches of Pendle Hill, whilst people in Barley shunned the topic. I didn't hear of the real witch again until I went to a sleepover with my four closest friends. I suppose we were still young and foolish enough to find this myth fascinating. I cannot, as hard as I try, forget the weekend in December. The year was 2009. It was the coldest winter in decades. 
Why we chose to sleep in a treehouse on such a brutal evening, I'll never know. I suppose it was another way of proving to ourselves that we were strong. This weekend's steady decline began when Michael told his story. There was once a witch who lived in Pendle. In 1612, 12 innocent women were convicted of 10 murders and tried for witchcraft. Not a single one of them ever harmed a soul. In the modern age, we all know that, don't we? That's not why they were innocent. The people simply hanged the wrong women. There was only ever one real Pendle witch and she's still out there. She lives in the forest of Boland. It's a long-kept barley secret, Michael explained. That's why only people from our village piss their pants at the mention of Pendle witches. Only we know she exists. Only we know where she exists. Michael continued, I saw our history teacher, Mr. Henderson, in the pub last Wednesday. He's in the pub most days now, Michael continued. He's not been the same since Millie went missing. I was nice to Mr. Henderson. I didn't expect him to open up, and he opened up. He really fucking opened up. He told me that he and Millie went on a Boland hiking weekend, but they weren't hiking. They were looking for something. The Pendle Witch. See, Mr. Henderson comes from a long line of Hendersons, one of the oldest families in Bali, and they've been passing on a warning for generations. Ever since the 1600s, his family have been telling the villagers of Bali to stay away from the Boland Forest. William Henderson was the only person to ever see the witch, and he lived to tell the tale. He wanted everyone in Bali to know about her. He wanted everyone to stay away, and they listened. Folk from other towns ignored him and said the Pendle witches had already been tried and hanged, but William was respected in our village. People trusted him and we heeded his warning. When Mr Henderson, our Mr Henderson, heard that story from his father, he became obsessed. You see, William Henderson told his son something that he didn't tell the rest of the villagers in Bali. It's a secret that's been kept in his family for hundreds of years. He told his son something that he was too scared to tell his friends and neighbours in case they might feel brave enough to do something about it. He told his son where the witch lived. So when Mr Henderson learned about his family secret 400 years later, he wanted to prove that the witch was still out there. Then Millie found his research and she wanted to go with him. She wanted to see whether the legend was true. Like her dad, she wanted to prove that a witch really exists. He was excited, Michael said. He wanted to share the adventure with his daughter. He didn't heed his own father's warning. He didn't see any danger. Or maybe, he admitted to me, he really didn't believe there was a witch at all. He was just excited to share something with Millie. He looked at me dead in the eyes and told me what they had found. They found a house in the heart of the Boland Forest. They found the witch. I tried to ask him what happened. He wouldn't tell me. He told me to go away. Told me that some questions weren't worth answering. And that is what he had finally learned. That is where Michael finished his story for the night. But the next morning... I woke up to a sensation of something heavy landing on my chest. It was my rucksack. Michael was dressed in full hiking gear and standing by the open trap door to the treehouse. 
it's real, Michael explained, and we're going to find her. Michael had the obsession, the itch, the bug. He had to find the witch. But then I had a horrible thought, a thought that sickened me to the very core of my being. Maybe that is what the witch wanted. Maybe that is how she found her prey. She got into their heads and lured them to her lair. I went down the ladder of the treehouse and Michael's brother was standing there with his old camper van. I watched Pendle Hill from the car window and thought about how beautiful it looked in the early morning sun. I wished more than anything that we were just going on a pleasant stroll up the hill to find the witch. Anywhere but the forest. Rick and his girlfriend Stacy dropped us off within the forest and said, You've got two hours. I looked at my phone. 12.57. So we turn around and head back to camp at two o'clock, right? I said. We turn around when we found Millie, Michael answered, marching forward. After about an hour, I looked at my phone screen and said, Shit, it's 2.07. Come on, Michael, let's turn around. The sun will have almost set by the time we get back. We're nearly there, Michael insisted. We can't turn back now. My other friends, Jack and Gareth, said they were turning back. They had enough of this nonsense. I begrudgingly followed Gareth and Jack to back to camp. I hoped that they were right. I hoped that Michael would get cold feet and follow us. He didn't. We were all starting to feel the chill of Bolan Forest as the sky turned a mesmerising shade of orange and eased into darkness. The hour-long back to camp passed quickly. When we arrived, however, the site was deserted. There were three fully pitched tents and smouldering piles of logs. In the dirt, there was an open packet of marshmallows. Some were lost in the mud. There were six camp chairs and two of them were also lying in the mud. Then we heard a haunting sound, a razor sharp scream that pierced the air and caused the three of us to immediately throw our hands to our ears. What the fuck? Gareth cried. That sounded like a woman. It must have been Stacy, I said. They're fucking with us. Michael, Rick and Stacy. they're fucking with us, guys. They planned the whole thing to scare us, Jack said, before starting to bellow. Nice prank, you guys. You can come out now. Nothing. Half an hour passed. Then an hour. Then another. And another. 6.30pm. It's pitch black and freezing cold out there. Why would they still be pranking us, Gareth asked. I looked down at the campfire, wishing for Rick, Stacy and Michael to come running out of the trees with smiles on their faces, but they didn't. Stacy, are you okay? I called. Rick, Michael, Gareth shouted. Not a sound, not even the rustling of tree leaves. Such an icy night and yet the air was still. So why could I still feel wisps of wind like winter's breath washing over my flesh? Oh, fuck, Jack interrupted, lifting his boot out of something that made a squelching noise. What the fucking fuck is this? Gareth and I slowly walked towards our crouching friend, casting our torchlights onto what he held in his hand. God, Gareth shuddered, before turning and vomiting behind him. Jack immediately dropped the squishy object, trembling as he returned to reality and finally realised what he had picked up with his bare hands. It is a sight that haunts me to this day. A heart. 
a human heart. I'm no biologist, but I know it was human. As we marched onwards, I found a renowned sense of confidence, something I hadn't possessed since the age of six, before my grandpa and dad had traumatised me. I wish I'd stayed frightened, rather than a dumb oaf who decided to delve deeper into the woods. I heard something behind me, Gareth whispered. I stopped walking and turned around, casting the torchlight on my two friends. The colour left my face, and any ounce of courage swiftly vacated my body. I screamed. I screamed louder than I knew I could scream. There was a figure behind Jack, a pale woman. She was strolling through the trees, and I thought it was the witch. Help! (coughs) She wheezed weakly. It wasn't the witch. It was Stacy. The three of us rushed over to her and Gareth dived to cushion her fall as her knees buckled and she fell to the ground. What happened? Jack asked, kneeling beside her. I was relieved to see that she didn't have a carnivorous hole in her chest. But whose heart was it? That's all we wanted to know. Anyway, that didn't mean that Stacy looked physically well. She didn't. Her face was grey, as if the blood had been drained from her body. Rick, she sobbed, pressing her face into Gareth's shirt. He just, he disappeared. What do you mean? I asked. Where did he go? We were at the camp. Stacy sniffled. He said he heard something, and I thought he was playing a cruel joke on me. He said she was calling to him. He said he had to go find her. Who? Gareth asked. Millie, Stacy whispered. How did you end up out here? Did you follow him? Jack asked. Stacy nodded. I saw something. I can't. I don't know. Please, we have to go. No, we have to find Rick and Michael, I pleaded. Stacy shook her head. No, they're gone. We found you so we can find them, I insisted. Rick, he tore out his... Stacy whined. The four of us fell silent. Gareth turned paler than Stacy, pulling himself away from her so he could empty his guts into a nearby bush. She didn't need to finish her sentence. We knew what he had torn out. We didn't, however, expect her to say what she said next. After he... After he did that, after he tore, he just... He just carried on walking. She sobbed. What? Jack asked. He? Where's his body, Stacy? Listen to me, she pleaded, assuming a fetal position on the ground. He didn't die. He walked away. We still need to find Michael, I stated firmly. We have to go, Stacy cried, stumbling to her feet, tugging at Gareth's sleeve. Jack whispered to me, Stacy's got fucking PTSD or some shit. I don't fucking know. Wake the fuck up, Tom. Rip didn't rip his heart out and walk away. No, something else did it to him. I held up my hands and I said, I know you don't believe, but... There is no fucking witch. Has everybody lost their minds? Jack belted at the top of his lungs. Then there was a faint sound of humming. We all stopped and listened. Stacy looked bewildered, wiping the tears from her face and watching three boys exchange horrified looks at one another. It's Millie, Gareth whispered, sobbing. That's her favourite song, I cried. She'd be told off for humming that in class. 
What are you saying? Stacy cried. I don't hear any humming. Please. This is all in your head. Don't leave me. Not like Rick. Michael, Jack said. It has to be Michael. He's toying with us. You guys get Stacy back to camp. I have to keep going, I said. But what was propelling me forwards? The farther we walked, the sicker I felt in the pit of my stomach. And yet, as we vanished into the heart of the forest, the more compelled I felt to find whatever I was trying to find. It wasn't Michael. I knew that much. Stacy wailed. No, please. I can't leave you on your own. Please, don't make me come with you. We need to go back to the camp. Come on, Tom, Jack said, putting a hand on my shoulder and speaking more gently. You've done enough for him. You don't have to keep going. You're not under his spell anymore. With tears in my eyes, I smiled at my dear friend and said something that I wouldn't understand until later. I'm sorry. And I kept walking. I knew that Gareth, Stacy and Jack would follow. They did not protest. But Stacy continued to cry. The boys followed the siren call of Millie's hum, and as did I. Then we saw it. Something none of us had really expected to see. A house. Little more than a derelict shed, really. Situated in the midst of the dense tree cluster was a tiny little house. What the fuck is this? Gareth asked. What is this house doing here? I don't like it, Jack whispered. The voice is coming from in there, I said. It's a trap, Stacy said. She's not really in there and you know it. You know it, Tom. Please stop this. I have to go inside. Millie and Michael are in there, I said. I cannot describe how I felt. I was not possessed. I did not hear the cackling voice of some sinister witch in my head. There were no demons telling me to kill my friends. I felt entirely in control of my limbs and my mind. Nevertheless, I was not myself. I was filled with an urge, an urge to go into that haunted hellhole. I started to walk towards the front door, but Stacy barged past me, still sobbing her heart out. I suddenly realised she had Gareth's torch in her hand. Let me, I remember her crying as she sprinted towards the door. Stacy grabbed the door handle shaking as she did so and called out, M-M-Millie? M-M-Michael? Are you, are you, are you in there? I'm going to come in. Gareth, Jack and I stood a few yards behind her. We waited with bated breath, wondering if we possibly could lie inside. It was too dark for us to see. Stacy opened the door, revealing nothing but darkness. She slowly lifted her torch. We all breathed a collective sigh of relief. It was just a house. She stood in a narrow hallway with doors lining either side and there was a painting on the wall at the end. I couldn't quite make out the picture from a distance but it looked familiar. Stacy stepped inside shining her light onto each of the doors and calling out for Millie and Michael again. Faster than any gust of wind could have carried her, the front door slammed behind her. She screamed. Stacy! Gareth yelled, lunging at the door. He and Jack started ramming their shoulders into it while I simply clasped both of my hands onto my head, dropping my torch to the ground. What have I done? Where have I led us? I still wanted to believe it wasn't real. This was just a house. Rick and Michael and Stacy were pranking us. The heart was fake. It wasn't real. 
Tommy! Jack shouted, slamming into the door that wouldn't budge. Help us! I snapped out of it and joined my friends. Eventually the latch snapped and the door flew open. My bravery seemed to have abandoned me, so I let Jack take charge. He led the way with his torch and I followed, too mentally broken to remember to pick up my fallen torch. We stepped into the house. I don't know why. I think we all knew that they were gone, but we just couldn't accept it. Or maybe the same force, the same thing that hummed at us was drawing us inside. Stacy! Jack shouted. Which door, Stacy? The house was a bungalow and it only had one hallway with six doors. There were six rooms that could be holding our friends. One at a time, Jack said, opening the first door on his left. Gareth and I cowered behind him, watching as he illuminated the first room. There was nothing in there but a pile of rucksacks. They're rucksacks. They're here. They have to be here. Jack quietly closed the door and we shuffled across the hallway to the first door on the right. A bedroom. There were scribblings on the wall in some language that we couldn't understand. Four more rooms. With each door we opened, my throat seemed to close a little more tightly. The second door on the left offered nothing but a book on the floor. Jack cast his torch on it. The Pied Piper of Barley was the title on the front. Where are you? Gareth screamed into the empty space. Jack clasped a hand to our friend's mouth and with his torch holding hand, he raised a finger to his lips. Gareth nodded and we shuffled silently across the hallway. It was the second door on the right that gave Jack a reason to hesitate. He placed his hand on the door handle. Stand back. I don't. There's something about this room. Did you hear that? Jack said. Hear what? I asked feebly. Of its own accord, the door to the fourth room flew open. What we saw next is something that I cannot explain. There stood Stacy with her face contorted in a way that defied all laws of nature. All I can tell you is that her eyes were gone. His sockets were two black holes. Stacy was gone. She looked as if she'd stared into the face of fear itself. The worst part was that she was still alive. She lifted a shaky arm and stretched her bony fingers towards us. I think she wanted help, but I also think she wanted death. Stacy, Gareth cried, squeezing between me and Jack. He knocked Jack's arm as he ran into the room and the torch went flying out of his hand. Gareth, wait, Jack screamed. The door slammed behind him. Without the last torch, we had been plunged into complete darkness. I was too afraid to walk back outside and find mine. Jack fiddled with the door handle, but it wouldn't budge. Neither of us had the energy to fight it. I think we realised we couldn't fight it. I realised I had my phone, so I slid it from my pocket. I used the flashlight to find Jack. He was leaning with his back against the now closed fourth door. He had his hands on his knees. They're not making a sound in there, he said. Nobody leaves this house, do they? I don't think so, I replied. Two more rooms. Tom, Millie is gone. Rick is gone. Stacy is gone. 
And now Gareth. Jack stopped, stifling his tears. Michael is gone too, you know that. I just... I paused. I think Michael's here. Maybe, Jack nodded, and maybe he's fucked up like everyone else. Look, I've seen some shit I can't explain, okay? I believe. I believe in the fucking witch, and I believe that you and I can still make it out of here. I ignored Jack, and I walked over to the third door on the right. We reached the end of the hallway, and I remembered something. The painting. I slowly lifted my light to get a better picture of it. It was a picture of a pond with three figures standing beside it. It was a boy, a girl, and an older man. That's when I realised. It was my grandpa, my little sister, and me. It was a painting of the day that I said about the witch. In the picture, my grandpa was clutching my wrist. The brush strokes captured the horrifying expression he's worn on his face as he told me of the real witch of Pendle. It's me. That's me in the painting, I whispered. What the fuck are you saying? Jack cried from behind me. Let's go while we still can, Tom. But I couldn't. I reached for the door handle to the third room on the right and lightly pushed it open. Inside, there was a boy standing up and a boy lying at his feet. Rick and Michael. Rick, I gently whispered. I had my light firmly fixated on his looming figure. He shuffled around to look at us. There was a bloody hole in the centre of his jumper and he revealed a face even ghastlier than the one we had just seen on Stacy. Unlike her, Rick did not look as if he had seen the face of fear. He did not look scared at all. In fact, beneath the black, empty holes where his eyes used to be, he wore a toothy, bloody grin that stretched from ear to ear. It haunts me. I can still see Rick's face. I still see him raising a finger to his lips and making a shushing sound. I remember his wheezing laugh. I remember him pointing at the floor behind him. Unable to utter a peep, I shakily moved my phone light to the floor. There lay the partially massacred body of Michael. He was missing an arm, two of his legs, and both of his eyes. But they weren't black holes like the ones that Stacy and Rick had. They were bloody wounds. Claw marks ran down his face. He was pointing at something in the corner of the room. I found her, Michael groaned. The witch made Henderson do it. I leaned around the door frame and cast my light into the corner. There it was. A pile of bones, wearing hiking clothes. It was Millie. I finally started to cry, and when I turned around to find Jack, he was gone. It was just me, Michael, and what used to be Rick. Jack! I screamed. Nothing. The fifth door slammed in my face. The brothers were gone. Jack was gone. I found myself standing alone in the hallway. I could feel a weight lifting from my mind, as if I'd been in a trance and now I could see. I wondered why I was still in the house. I turned on my heel and eyeballed the open doorway that led back out into the forest. But something still had my body. I couldn't move. And that was when the sixth and final door creaked open. The third door on the left. 
I found my feet carrying me towards it. I remember glancing at the painting at the end. The three figures were gone. There was a silhouette behind the painted trees. It moved out of sight. I found myself standing in the last room and the door closed behind me. It was cold, like no coldness I'd ever felt before and darkness like no darkness I'd ever seen. I felt my arm moving. I couldn't stop it. My phone light was moving across the walls, slowly making its way towards something at the back of the room. No, I cried, trying desperately to stop myself. I don't want to see what was at the back of the room. I could hear breathing. I couldn't move my limbs, but I could move my lips. Wait, why did you let Mr. Henderson live? My arm stopped. My whole body stopped. The breathing stopped. While I had control of my limbs, I let the phone drop to the floor. It landed face up so that the flashlight was pressed against the floor. I breathed a sigh of relief. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be forced to see what Stacy and Rick had seen. Made a deal, a voice whispered. It wasn't the voice of a woman. It wasn't the voice of a man. I always say that it was the devil, but I do that to help myself sleep at night. Truthfully, whatever was in that room scared me more than the devil. What deal? I whimpered. I'll never forget seeing her blackened silhouette as she moved in front of the one window in the room. Dim moonlight wasn't dim enough to completely hide her. Seven foot tall, gangly limbs and a head far bigger than that of any human. I see her in my dreams. I see her in my waking hours. I'm lucky that I dropped the phone. Would I be like Stacy and Rick if I'd seen her in the light? Must. Feared. That was all she said to me before I passed out, but I knew what she wanted. She's already told me what I needed to do. The book on the floor, the pied piper of barley. She would let me live, but I had to continue what William Henderson had started. The tales he'd told the villagers of barley. They had been leading victims to the witch for years. Maybe he couldn't give exact directions, but all it takes is a spark, an idea. Of course, everyone in Bali knows the story, but not everyone feels the pull. Maybe it only works on the broken. Mr. Henderson ignited the spark in Michael. He planted the idea of the witch, and Michael did the rest. I'd like to think our dear old history teacher did not willingly lead his daughter to slaughter, just as Michael did not willingly lead our friends to the house. Mr. Henderson was just a fool who had learned the hard way what his ancestor had really done to make it out of the Boland house alive. And like the Hendersons, I knew what I needed to do. When I woke up in the morning, I was back at the campsite. I rang my parents and I told them that everyone had gone missing in the woods. I told them that they tried to find Millie, but I stayed in the tent. I'm 27 now. It's been 13 years and the families of my friends still hunt for their missing children but they do not know where to look. I could have told them where to go, but the witch wouldn't have taken very kindly to an angry mob. I misdirected the police and her house was never found. Not everyone in Bali is prey. Some of us are just storytellers. The witch's pied pipers. Speaking of which, I still see Mr. Henderson in the village from time to time. I think he knows what I am. 
I think he knows what I've done. He shames me with a glare, but no more than he shames himself. Heed my warning, the Pendle Witch is real. Something far older than you or me. And she's hungry, very hungry. I think you know why I've told you this story. And I think you finally understand. And I'm sorry, it's an idea and I have to plant it. So if you feel something pulling you deep into the forest of Boland, please forgive me. So I'm sorry that that was a bit of a long one. So we're not going to really talk about it because I think you've all listened out. Um, It was a good story, wasn't it? Uh, some parts I was a bit like, come on, just get to it. But I liked it. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. And if you liked what you hear, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to. It would really be beneficial and it would help the podcast. You can also find us on TikTok at AX The Cemetery. You can find us on Twitter slash X at AX The Cemetery. And you can find us on Instagram at Across The Cemetery. And if you have any Pendle Witch stories or anything that you would like to say, our email address is acrossthecemetery at gmail.com and we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye.